CMG Podcast, Change, Maintain, Grow. I'm Keith Masima. This is my brother, Ben Shea, episode 11. My man, welcome back. How are you, Ed? Good, brother. Good, brother. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Ben, it feels like I haven't spoken to you in ages. Fucking, yeah, I miss you, bro. <laughs> How's your week, Ben? Yeah, it's been good. Been good, man. Some challenges, some, you know, new opportunities. And yeah, it's been good. What about you? Yeah, pretty big week. Just... um smashed with uni at the moment i've got my two major assignments due so i've been under the pump and probably haven't been as good as i could have been with my time management which is always i think is parkinson's parkinson's law they call it you leave things till till last minute and i find i do my best work when i'm under the pump so that's what i'm telling myself anyway so i'll try and bang these two out and then it's all downhill to the end of the semester so yeah you're doing well man you you know you got a lot on your plate and no, you're doing well, man. I'm I'm proud of you. Trying my best, man. Well, I'm not working, so I'll try and try and make the most of it while I can. But I'm lucky to be able to do it. So we'll see what happens. The just wanted to chuck out a reminder for the CMG Christmas challenge, which we are both kind of taking part in. But it's it's not until the end of the year, so we've just kind of, we put it out there earlier, and we're just going to keep yeah. referring back to it. Which is the we're going for a two k concept two time trial on the rower and we're going for 200 kilo bench press that's the aim anyway and on the time <laughs> on the time trial on the rower we want to go for sub six minutes which is an elite elite time but you know we're, <laughs> we're aiming high we don't we don't here to fuck around you know what i mean like if we aim for six minutes and we get 620 615 610 you know what i mean we're um we're going to be happy because you know that's a that's a great time in itself but and the 200 yeah. kilo bench if we if we bench 180 but that's, that's a for, yeah that's a win so that's for everyone out there and there has been a lot of has been a fair few people already jump on board my yeah partner who <laughs> on the show last week she's been jumping on doing it got a few of the other boys doing it I think we need to give some shout-outs next week. I'm always like tentative to give shout-outs on here because I don't want to leave anyone out. But we do have a few regular guys that's always, you know, on the cold showers in the morning, tagging us in their training, tagging us in their routine, tagging us in their posts, guys and girls, which we really yeah. appreciate. So we might make a list this week and give a few shout-outs. And if you want a shout-out, hit us up. Yeah, they're for free as well. They're for free, yeah, they're for free, of course. <laughs> so we've got the 2K row time trial, the 200 kilo bench, or the bench press in the row, and we're going to give out some prizes, some prizes at Christmas for biggest overall, so biggest bench, best time on the 2K time trial, and then get a bit of a baseline, record a bit of a baseline from when you started, and we'll go like most improved. So if you're only benching 50 kilos and you end up benching 90 kilos obviously that's an improvement we'll gauge that against other people male and female because obviously the girls well they might push as much weight as the boys but probably not likely to push as much weight as the boys so we're going to have a male and female category and pound for pound for all our little cmgs out there little pint-sized guys and girls because <laughs> um, yeah. we've got a few big boys out there chucking around some weight so and then obviously our other our other challenge that we've got going at the moment is the uh, the CMG Watch a Marathon Challenge to time with me doing the seven marathons in seven days from the seventh of September to the thirteenth of September. We uh, around the corner. 
just around the corner. It's three weeks away. It's actually gone pretty quick. So yeah, we're putting it out there. We want you to challenge yourself. You don't have to run a marathon, but pick a distance that might be the furthest you've gone, a PB for you, or you might want to run a PB time, or it might be the furthest you've gone in a few years. Just pick a distance yep. and uh, and go for it. And if you haven't been doing any training leading up to this point, there's still three weeks before we go. But even like on the day, if you pick a day and you're untrained, you've done no training, just go out and challenge yourself because I guarantee you like, people get the idea that a marathon, 42.2 Ks is a long way. And we just kind of put these barriers in the head straight away. Like a oh, marathon, we can't do that. But I guarantee you, everyone listening out there, whether able-bodied, wheelchair, on crutches, whatever, if at the drop of a hat right now, I put a gun to your head and said, I'm going to kill you or kill one of your family members if you can't do a marathon. You'd be able to put your put your shoes on, pump up your tires, jump on, you know, whatever you got to do, get your crutches out and walk, walk 42.2 Ks or, you know, you'd be able to do it. It might take you 12 hours, but you'd be able to do it. Like, so yeah. just challenge yourself, set yourself a goal. And then by you doing that, obviously opens up doors moving forward. And you might've ran a marathon before, run a back-to-back marathon with me. I'm doing seven back-to-back. So do one, one day and one the next day, really challenge yourself or set yourself a a PB time to hit the marathon. And on the last day we want, you can join me whenever you want through it. But on the last day, we want to hopefully get as many people together as we can and maybe do it together or wherever you are. If you're in New South Wales, if you're in New Zealand, if you're in France, you know, you can do a marathon anytime, <laughs> brother. <laughs> There's no excuse. You know? and I, yeah, I that's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, but like you said, it's, you know, the marathon challenge, it's your marathon. So your marathon might be 10Ks, 15Ks. So, you know, just get out of your, your comfort zone and, and challenge yourself and run your marathon. 100%. That's it. That's the main thing. Like your marathon might be 5Ks. You might never yeah. have done 5Ks. Like one of the boys, Mo, he's tagging us. This week, he's doing 15Ks for the week, which is five 5K runs. And he done his first 5K run on Monday. And that, that's the first time he's ever run 5Ks, you know. So he's opened up doors, unlocking unlocking doors upstairs. And once you hit that mark, it enables you to move forward. Because I think I've said on here before, 2018, Christmas time, I still remember. That was the first time I'd been running kind of up to about 8Ks. That was kind of always my go-to distance. I always had this thing in my head that 10Ks was a long way. And I ran my first 10Ks. I remember running it and I'm like, oh, man, that was a long way. You'd probably only run it once a month because it's a fair distance. Now I run, you know, 10Ks for fun. 10Ks is my go-to distance. So it's amazing what you, when you actually achieve something, how quickly it unlocks them doors in your mind where you can move forward. And yeah, like if someone said to me, like that's where I want to get to in my training, like not have an off season and off an on season and off season or like, you know, I'm training for something, training for this. I just want to be able to, at the drop of a hat, if someone says, man, you've got to run 100K to save your family's life, or I can do it, or you've got to go lift X amount of weight or do this on the rower, just kind of be constantly ready, just be a hard motherfucker yeah. kill, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? Not like they have an on-season, off-season, just be consistently ready to go at the drop of a hat. So that's my aim anyway, yeah. which yeah. kind of 
leads us in the next thing because my training load, I'm trying to get as many Ks in my legs as I can. I probably haven't got quite as many in, but I've been doing a lot of cross training because I'm still doing my weights four times a week. My mobility started with coach Troy Savage. If anyone's looking to do mobility, some splits, dunk a basketball, get better knees, <coughs> jump over to his page, Troy Savage. He's got a, a good online program, good app. Um, so yeah, I'm still doing all this other stuff, some boxing, jujitsu, and trying to get the Ks in my legs. So the first week I done 50 Ks, second week I done 61, last week I done 75. This week I'm aiming for 100, but I've had a few time restrictions with the uni and whatnot. So hopefully I'll get to the 100 the following week, 100, then I'll taper off. But oh, we, we didn't even mention at the start, but we got Mark Telenoa coming on. He's our guest today. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be a good chat. Awesome chat. Looking forward to that. And, you know, he has, he has a story that I'm looking forward to getting into with him, but like a brief overview, a young footy star, superstar, NRL contract in with the wrong crowd, drugs, alcohol, gangs, violence, <coughs> jail time, deported back to New Zealand and now turned his life 180 and on a road to redemption type of thing. So, can't wait to get into it with him, which, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting and going to be a good listen. And he's been kind of a friend. We fo- He follows our stuff. We follow his stuff. We've both kind of known him. I knew him a little bit before this. Yeah. You had a, um, more of a relationship with him down in Sydney, which we'll probably go into during the interview. But we wanted to, I guess, to tie into his thing, we've had a lot of questions on peer pressure. And peer pressure is something that always, if we ask people oh, what topics should we touch on, peer pressure always seems to come up. So we thought we'd just delve into it a little bit before we went into Mark's um, chat because I'm guessing peer pressure is probably going to be a fundamental thing that maybe propelled him to where he went or where he ended up. So yeah, what like if I say peer pressure, I guess what's peer pressure mean to you or what's your idea of peer pressure? Peer pressure... I think um, I think everyone has an experience of peer pressure, whether they're the one trying to influence somebody or a group of people to do something they don't want to do, or they're the one being influenced by somebody or a group of people to do something they don't want to do. I've and you know personally, I've been a part of both camps where you know I'll probably try and push something off to someone or to a group of people to do something that you know isn't going to benefit them and i've also had people and and, you know friends of mine that kind of trying to push ideas and and things onto me that i didn't want to do um yeah but yeah peer pressure is something that i think everyone's experienced whether they're on um, one side or or the other of the coin of peer pressure what about you yeah definitely i think as you said being on both sides of the coin i think if you look at it as a whole Peer pressure is, I think everyone definitely experiences peer pressure and peer pressure can be from, I think peer pressure can be both good and bad. I think it gets a, there's a lot of negative connotations when you say peer pressure because like automatically if you say peer pressure to me, I just think of like peer pressure, smoking cigarettes or sculling a bottle of rum or something like that. But peer pressure is, yeah. comes back to everything we do in society. And I think in society as a whole, we're so peer pressured into doing everything and doing that like. 
talking to you the other day and we're talking, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, that type of thing, you know what I mean? You press it into yeah. having the best car, the best clothes and doing things, keeping up with trends that you're not, you don't actually you know necessarily want to do. And those trends could be, you know, from clothing to drinking, to smoking, to drug use, like it encompasses so much, but the more I definitely think my whole, my whole probably from after primary school, from high school till definitely mid twenties, maybe a bit further on since I kind of started this personal development journey, what like consciously, I think my whole life was definitely affected by pre oppression. You know what I mean? When you don't essentially know who you are, you just want to do stuff to, you know, keep up with the boys and, and yeah, it can come like in acute forms, like, you know, a big nut on the piss where you peer pressure to do drugs or alcohol, but it can come over longer forms where you just, you know, you think you got to wear the certain clothes and, and put out a certain persona and match up to a certain yeah. attitude. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, you are right. It does come in both forms, both positive and negative. I think, you know, recently, maybe like the last year or so, my peer pressure is probably kind of a bit more positive because peer pressure is from your peers, right? So yeah. I've kind of changed the peers around me and, and got positive people around me like yourself, you know, like you've kind of pressured me to do these challenges where, you know, I'm not comfortable doing, but I know it's good for me. So that's like, a, I guess, a kind of positive form of peer pressure. I think peer pressure, you know, depends on the peers around you. What, yeah. what do you reckon? Yeah, well, come on, bro. You can do a marathon. It'll be fun. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. It's definitely, it's definitely who you surround yourself with. Like, if you're surrounding yourself with negative people, they're going to enable negative behavior and you to drop your standards. But if you're hanging around positive people, as long as that peer pressure is pushing you in the direction you want to go and the person you want to become, I think like you could – different names for peer pressure, but accountability – people holding you to a higher standard and that's the whole point. Like you hang around people that hold you to a higher standard. It kind of pressures you into doing that. And, and by you continually doing that, then that becomes who you are and that's in the direction you want to have. And that's by hanging around people. Like you become the sum of the, you know, people you hang around. Like we always say, there's four negative people in the room. You become the fifth. There's four positive. You become the fifth. So definitely that. Yeah. And almost not like in different words, but like CMG is almost, we're trying to peer pressure people to go in one direction because that's the whole point of like, if you put it out there, like a few of the boys jumping on challenges this week saying they're going to do 50 Ks, uh, they're going to do 15 Ks. They're going to do seven Ks a day for seven days. They're going to do five Ks a day for seven days. They're going to do the 13 Ks a day for seven days whatever it is, which there's probably been four or five boys jump on this week by them putting it out there and, you know, they become accountable for it, but they kind of know that consciously or subconsciously they're aware watching or someone's watching, they've put it out in the world, they've put it out in the CMG page. So they feel almost peer pressured to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. It's definitely yeah, who you surround yourself with and what kind of pressure and what direction that peer pressure is heading you in like a good example, I guess, of peer pressure in a good way was the other day I've been going into uh, Glenn Azar gym, Glenn Azar's gym project 180 on Friday to do boxing. Me and Munner have been going in. And then after it, 
uh, Zaya and Brody were in there and they're like, oh, you want to come out for breakfast? And Jaden was there too. The whole bro chat crew was there. And they're like, oh, you want to come for breakfast? I'm like, yeah, sweet. And Jaden was picking up a, a squat rack to t- take home. And he had like a, he had a van that the squat rack was going to go in the back of, but the squat rack was just too big to fit in. So you probably had to take out like three bolts to get it in would have like a little bit of stuffing around, but not too much. And we were already going to breakfast. So everyone's kind of waiting around. We're trying to get this squat rack in without taking the bolts out. And then turns out like the decision had to be made, you know, you had to get the, the socket set and take the bolts off. And I think Jaden, I'll throw him under the bus, but he goes, Oh, I think this looks like a problem that we'd uh, we'd solve after breakfast. Like be better with a bit of food in our stomachs. You know what I mean? Like let's, yeah. let's, let's leave it walk away from it, go over feed, we'll come back, we'll deal with it later. And Glenn just kind of looks at him and goes, are we the kind of people that solve things after breakfast? Are we the kind of people that like, <laughs> leave problems behind? And then like that automatically, I hadn't said anything, but I was just about to say, yeah, fuck it, bro. Let's go get some breakfast. But <laughs> yeah. He's like, are we the kind of people who do that? And I'm like, mate, Jalen, let's get that socket set. Let's get this done, brother. <laughs> but, you know, that was a clear example of peer pressure. Like he was pressured into actually doing something and in, in doing that, that was positive. And now that just kind of lesson of that, you know, is sitting with me, obviously moving forward or instead of putting things off, let's get things done because that's the standard that we are putting out there. So that's the standard that we've got to hold ourselves yeah. to. But then you can see definitely in a different context, if you flip Glenn and all of a sudden Glenn was a bad Glenn and the boys are sitting around with, a carton or you know whatever else and go oh, get get a couple of these and you have a beer and you're like oh no you know it's easy to kind of be swayed one way or the other it just comes back to who you're surrounding yourself with but definitely as you get older i think it's easier to to navigate around that when you actually know who you are yourself like at the moment yeah people say it and i hate i know i hate it it's not a pet hate it it is kind of a pet hate of mine, but you know, when you see people jump on social media and they're like, man, like the best thing I've done was not give a fuck about what people think. And like, you just know yeah. straight away in your head, you're just thinking, brother, you are probably the person that gives the fuck about what people think yeah. the most. You know what I mean? Like you're putting this out, like you're always jumping from this, that and the other. And they're like, you're going to come out and tell me you don't care what people think. Like your, yeah. whole, your whole image is based on what people think, you know, like, but I think like genuinely like now I probably, I really, I think I've got to a stage where I don't care what people think. Obviously I want to make people happy around me, but now I've kind of got my standards set myself. I just want to make myself happy because I know if I'm doing things myself, I'm probably moving it. I'm going in the right direction or at least I've got the best of intentions and I've got to make them mistakes myself. Whereas before I probably like, I still ask people's advice, but I probably would have acted more on people's advice without taking my own intuitions into account, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess I'm saying I don't give a fuck, but yeah. Um, yeah in a but that's way. important, you know, like we've had a couple of posts on our, on our social media page where we always say it's you versus you, because you know, at the end of the day, that's all that matters is what, if you know who you are and what you're about, it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks about you, you know, going back on peer pressure, I think, when you know when you're a young kid coming up you don't really have any experiences to draw back on and to recognize that you know when someone is trying to 
pressure into something you don't recognize that as peer pressure and you know, like now we're a bit older if we kind of feel something that's a bit off we kind of know oh, this guy's probably trying to peer pressure me you know like but when you're young they don't really recognize it and i think that's probably one of the, the problems for, for young kids coming up is they don't recognize that it's peer pressure and just go on and, and, and do it and don't ask any questions you know yeah it's definitely part of the journey and and realizing those those things and those triggers, but like like even FOMO, like a year or two ago, if the boys were on the drink and they'd be like texting me, like "Come on, man!" Like almost that's yeah. a form of peer pressure. Like, more, and I'm doing it myself, and you get anxiety, like "Oh no, what am I missing out?" Like I need to be with the boys. You try and make up that many excuses to the misses, but like I'm in a completely different spot now. Like someone trying to peer pressure me, which the boys like have done, like to have a beer or talk me into having a beer or go out and do this. Like it registers absolutely like zero on my radar yeah. because now I'm like probably more sure of what I'm about and where I'm heading that I know, you know, I'm not going to be swayed by all this other stuff. If that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. As you said, it, it's, you, you don't kind of have these tools and strategies when you're younger, but hopefully here and us talk about it. And then definitely when we get Mark on, hear him talk about these things it can give younger people, even people, you know, our age, like shit, I haven't got everything fucking sorted out myself. Like I'll probably be learning, I'll be learning stuff off Mark today. So yeah, hopefully just by talking about starting these conversations, as we've said before, like you don't have to hit rock bottom before you turn around, like learn from other people. And yeah, I definitely think Mark's got some, yeah. uh, some, some gold up his sleeve. He's got some knowledge from his story. So uh, yeah, he's, he's probably one that actually hit rock bottom, you know, to kind of change his life around. So yeah, it would be good to listen to what he has to say. Yeah, he's walked that path. So others don't have to walk that path, but they can definitely pick up the lessons that he's he's picked up along the way. So, yeah, I guess let's let's get him on. We'll be back with the man, Mark Telenoa. Sweet, we're on. I'm here with my man, Mark Telenoa. How are you, brother? Good, bro. Well, bro. Yourself? I'm good, my man. I was... Uh, there was meant to be a, a third person in the chat, <laughs> my partner in crime, Keith. But he's gone in by mate. <laughs> I think he slept in. So, uh, all good. We'll roll with it. Roll with the punches. Thanks for That's jumping good. on, brother. Nah, thanks, bro. bro. Pleasure, man. Pleasure to jump on and uh, share my story, bro. It's um, It's been our plan to get you on all along. You're probably the first name that we wrote down on a list when we decided we wanted to interview people. So, yeah, it's good to finally get you on here. So I'll probably just go over a quick little intro to set the scene for everyone that doesn't know who Mark Telenoa is and then we'll dive into your story, my brother. Yeah, cool, bro. So young Kiwi kid, Tongan Heritage, younger brother to Fatuli, who if people don't follow rugby league, he's had a very successful rugby league career. 95 games for the Rabbitohs in the NRL. Then went over to the Super League, 128 games for Hull FC. I think, did he win a couple of championships over there? They won one championship. It wasn't the major one. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, he did win a couple, I think he did, yeah. But yeah, he had a, uh, he's had a, he, he just retired in uh, 2019. Yes, yes. So yeah, yeah. He had a very successful career. And then you... You came over to Australia to play rugby league and for opportunities in life, signed by the Sydney Roosters. Yep. Captain of their under-18s, captain of their under-20s, captain of Matraville Sports High, who won the 2007 Arrive Alive Cup, which is, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, put it in context, it's probably the 
biggest schoolboy rugby league competition in the world, you'd say, hands down, in the world. Um, and then you were set, set to fulfill your destiny and become an NRL player, got caught up with the wrong crowd, maybe, you know, drugs, alcohol, gang life, jail. Yes. Deported back to New Zealand, and now you're walking a, uh, a different path on the road to redemption. So quite the story so far, brother. Yeah, bro. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's me in a nutshell. But yeah, me and, me and my brother, we didn't really uh, choose to go to Australia. My mum actually like put us on a one-way ticket, bro, because um, put us yeah, on well, a one-way ticket over to... Well, well that's, that's what I was going to get to next, because I've read a couple of uh, Fatuli stories, of what he's, he's put out there before. And so take us back, I guess, to your childhood in New Zealand growing up what was the environment like and that transition from New Zealand to Australia? Because as you said, I think that's a story in itself. Give us a bit of an overview on that. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, East Auckland, uh, Glen Innes, GI boy, uh, and, you know, low socioeconomic sort of background, a lot of violence, a lot of crime, a uh, lot of gangs, a lot of drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, so that was kind of my upbringing, but that was normal to me, you know, like my role models I used to look up to we all gangsters and thugs. And um, there was no surprise that out of me and my brother, plus five of us, uh, so out of seven, seven of us, um, five of us ended up in prison, bro, doing lengthy wax for like heavy charges all the way up to murder. Um, you know, murder, assaults, robberies. Uh, and I did what I had to do with a shooting charge. And yeah, that's that was kind of my upbringing, bro, um, in Glen Innes was raised in a household of there's eight of us so you know big typical Tongan family you know four boys four girls my mum um very strong independent woman dad was there uh, physically but wasn't there sort of emotionally you know a uh, bit of a womanizer um but yeah it was a crazy crazy sort of household to grow up in but um no I wouldn't change it bro for the world so did you get the when you went from New Zealand to Australia. Were you you were already signed for the Roosters? That that was the reason for the initial. You were going over to play at the Roosters, weren't you? And then for Tully, just your mum bought you both one way tickets and just kind of sent you off. Was that how it went down? No, no, I wasn't. Nah. I wasn't. Oh, you weren't signed. No, I wasn't signed at all. Uh, she kind of put us on a one way uh, sort of uh, ticket over to Oz because of uh, we we're getting caught up um, in the sort of street thug life, you know, gang life. Uh, because she sent us off to boarding school first uh, at the age of 13 and my brother was 14. And that didn't work because so we'll go to boarding school, Wesley College, uh, from Monday to Friday and we'll come back and play <laughs> up with the boys, you know. Um, so that didn't work. And she witnessed us, you know, experienced us getting into, you know, a lot of fights. And um, she kind of seen it as an opportunity to put us on, on the plane and, and search for a better opportunity. But it wasn't until I got to Sydney, um, I was already playing footy, rugby uh, union here in New Zealand. I played under 13s for Auckland and under 14s Auckland. So I already had, uh, I guess, that talent. So it was no you know, surprise when I went, moved over to Bo uh, Sydney, Bondi, um, and went with the Roosters and my brother went with the Bunnies. So how old were you when you came to Australia? Yeah, 14, 14, 20, 14. And then you, so you must have got picked up relatively quickly by the Roosters. You must have got noticed pretty quick. Yes, yeah, straight into the 15s uh, development side and then, yeah, obviously transition, Harold Matthews, issue ball, all that stuff. 
yeah, because we were just talking off air before we jumped on while we are waiting for Keith, but um, we were just talking that we are the same age and I was kind of in Sydney playing footy when you were in Sydney too, but obviously you wouldn't have known really who I was because you were the, you were the gun of that age group, of, of our age group. Like you were, everyone knew who Mark Tellenau was. You were the captain of, as we just said, you were we, captain of Harold Matz, SG Ball, under 20s. Um, captain of that Matchville side that won the Arrival Live, and there was, you know, those teams were stacked. It wasn't like you yeah, were just bro. a standout <laughs> player, and you know there were some average players underneath you. Like if you, if we went back through those teams, a high percentage of those guys have played NRL, and yeah. Fatuli was already a household name. I guess he was playing first grade at the Rabbitohs when you were going coming through these younger grades. But yep. always being around rugby league, which I was, and anyone else that was around the rugby league circles at that stage, it was kind of like you were always the most talented brother and you were the brother that was meant to go onto bigger and better things in the rugby league arena. Yep. Sorry, sorry if you're listening for Tully, but you were the kind of most talented brother. <laughs> and yeah, so it wasn't a question of if you were going to play NRL, it was when. So, yeah. And like you, we, you like, You'll know too when you're at these camps, you hear it all the time. Um, you know, talent doesn't get you there. You know, <laughs> talent talent is not everything. And I used to sit there thinking, nah, fuck, I'm sweet, I'm sweet. I'll get there, I'll get there. And then once my brother made first grade, because he cracked it at age of 18, he was still in school. Yeah. Um, so once he debuted and I was 16, I was thinking, fuck, man, I'll, I have to make it now. Do you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, so the pressure was on and, yeah, obviously it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, because we're just talking, oh, me and Keith were talking before that. Keith was in that team of Matraville that you were captain of when one in 2007 mm-hmm. and like, it's a small world. I was, you actually like Matraville played St. Greg's my team and you just knocked yep. us out in the quarterfinals. Like you smashed us that year. I think when you were going to get beat, we had a decent team, but you guys were stacked. So yeah, we're all, all kind of interrelated for that schoolboy <laughs> comp in 2007 in some way or another. Yeah. So, yeah. As you said, you were always destined, or as I said, you're always destined to go on to NRL. When, what was kind of the start of the downfall, I guess? Could you, can you put your finger on one thing or was it just a combination of things that slowly built up? I think it was a combination of things, Benny. It was a lot of self-sabotage. Uh, my core belief uh, has always been I've never been good enough. Uh, so deep down inside, and I kind of reinforced that by going and using drugs and womanizing and, you know, where my brother, where Tools wasn't the most talented, but he'll be doing the 1%ers, you know, eating right, um, going home after games, sleeping, recovery, you know, the shit that we talk, you guys talk about, yeah. CFD, you know, the 1%ers, he was doing that all right all the time, but I was just going out partying, drugs, this, that. And once I started getting injured and um, kind of reinforced that core belief, like, fuck, I'm not good enough. And then the, the pressure from the family, you know, once my brother cracked it and, you know, being an Islander sort yeah. of household, like you have to make it, you know, and I started fucking doubting myself, um, which led on to injuries and then, you know, the confidence level wasn't there and then I started fucking dabbling too much drugs and partying and then, yeah, I just got over it and then I just threw in the towel, man. I said, fuck this, I, I'm over it. Um, so the drugs and alcohol was that something that you brought over from New Zealand with you or was that something that you picked up along the way? Because obviously you were still only young then. You're, you're only, you know, 19, 20. Were, was, 
was this something that, you know, you only picked up when you come to Australia or it's something that you always kind of done it just escalated, escalated, escalated? I started drinking at age, what, 13 um, before I come over to uh, Oz. So it wasn't really the drinking, uh, but yeah, the drugs, I was introduced to a lot of drugs. Uh, you know, I was started off with the weed and then the pills and then being inside, you know, the footy culture of the circles, that's just the norm, you know, get a, yeah. get a couple of bags and MDMAs and party pills and fucking drugs and alcohol goes hand in hand with the, I guess, with that lifestyle. Um, Mm. Um, we had like Jaden Nicarima on a couple of weeks ago and his thing was he probably had all these bad habits. Well, not so much drugs and that, but just things that he always done through school, through the juniors, but it was because he was good at footy. It always was masked and footy kind of masked it, but eventually everything just caught up with him because, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. He, He's off field. It wasn't, he didn't have his ducks in a row. And then, you know, his footy kept masking it, kept masking it, but eventually it caught up with him. Would you say that was kind of similar to you? Your footy ability covered up what you were doing away from footy. And then eventually it was just a straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing all caught up with you? Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I listened to that podcast. It was an awesome podcast. Um, and yeah, I kind of just dabbled into drugs and, you know, little bit here and there and on the weekends and then once I was introduced to like some heavy drugs and then footy stopped once I once I stopped footy and then I had so much time um because I was doing nightclubs I was um me and my business partner started a um a promotions of uh, managing um events some um, sort of business um and we had two nightclubs that we were uh, managing and we had all this money coming in I was, I was only 20 years old um, you know, especially being in the nightclubs, bro, drugs are just, you know, pumping it 24-7. So I had all this money. I'm on the drugs. A lot of time, it's just a recipe for disaster, if you yeah. know what I mean. Um, so that's what kind of led me. Um, and I was introduced to ICE, and that's where my life just went on a fucking quick downward spiral. Eh? So would you say that's when, obviously, you made a conscious decision to finish footy at 20, did you? That was it. About 21, I went and played Premier League, um, had a go with uh, the Bears, North City Bears. Um, but they were, I was just biding my time, you know. I was just, you know. One, on. one foot in, one foot out kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I was just still drinking and partying on, during the week and then turn up to the games and, you know what I mean? Uh, week in, week out, then get injured and then the same cycle. And I was like, oh, fuck this, man. So that's when things really escalated, the, the nightclub scene. And when did things kind of progress as in you went to jail how did what was the kind of steps between you know the nightclub scene and then jail how did things progress along those lines uh so yeah uh decided to join a bloody uh bikey gang uh as you do in sydney these fucking bikey gangs you know in every street uh just to kind of fill that void um you know you come from a footy sort of context footy background you want to be around the boys, you know, kind of belonging. Um, I wanted, I wanted to make a lot more money um, through the bikey club. So I joined this bikey club anyway. Um, so obviously that opened doors to, you know, more shifty behavior. I started wheeling, dealing, um, using. Um, and then once I was introduced to meth, uh, that was just, yeah, bro, hooked straight away. Eh? And that, that was kind of 
the I guess transition into the downward quick downward spiral, which led me going and offending, um, committing all these crimes, and then ending up in jail for five and a half years. So talk us through your habit. What was when you were in the depths of that? What I get you'd say addiction, definitely. Yes, fucking up. When you're in the depths of that addiction, what was it like? What was a normal day for you? How was how were you getting about life? Mate, I'll, I'll tell you that the, the deepest uh, sort of the depth of my drug abuse, the worst I went was two weeks, right? Two weeks straight. I remember you and Keefe talking about uh, with Jaden on that podcast talking about um, benders. And I was thinking, fuck, man, two weeks was uh, the longest two weeks straight. No sleep. I'd, no sleep, mate. And, and the thing was, um, I was hiding my, I would only smoke with a, uh, my, my smoking partner. Uh, because no one knew that I was on the ice. Not even my business partner knew. Um, he knew that I'll dabble in the coke and MDMA and this and that. But I'd go back home after the nightclubs and just fucking smoke, bro. Smoke, 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 smoke. Wouldn't eat. That'll be pretty much my day. I'll just smoke all fucking day, and then I'll go out and do my many do my nightclubs. You know, marketing flyers, this that. Meet up with the owners of the nightclubs, and then I'll go back home. Same thing. Meet up with my smoking partner. Smoke, 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 all through the fucking morning. How, what, what's your mindset in those grips like? So you're obviously you're still functioning to some degree. You're not just locking yourself in a dark room and going for two weeks. You're still getting out and about. No, so that, that two weeks, I didn't realise I went for two weeks uh, because, you know, I'm usually, I'm wired to, I'm always on the go, mate. I'm always just yeah. going and, and doing stuff. So the kind of meth kind of fucking, you know, kind of help that sort of part like that sort of way that I'm wired, uh, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, you're still alert. You're still functioning. You're still going about your daily business. I'll be going out, seeing people and having feeds and going and see family and then go back home and smoke, 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 and then same cycle. That's just the daily for, for my experience anyway. Would you describe yourself as a different person? Could you see a personality change or you just kind of kept the same, kept the same personality but you know, you're just a little bit off where you normally were. Uh, I didn't see the changes now that I'm drug free now. Now that I look back and I used to think, fuck man, I was, I was, I was in a bad way, you know? Um, I, I, I believe that meth opens or drugs in general opens up that door into that, um, that evil spirit, that sort of realm um, and that's what I kind of tapped into and I became a just yeah, very evil uh, sort of person. So obviously, as we've kind of touched on, all this led to jail time. Was there, was there one incident or was it a build-up of charges along the way that you got put away for? Talk us through go, actually going to jail and getting locked up. Yeah, it was, it was a, a build-up. I uh, went on the run for about a couple of weeks. Uh, so in that month, I was just offending, you know, um, doing some pretty violent, um, horrific, horrific uh, things to a, a person that I used to know that was part of the biking gang too. Um, but yeah, it was just it was out of paranoia and out of fear, bro. Um, I believe now, now looking back at it, um, I was because growing up in Glen Innes, you're taught by the, all the OGs and all the older boys that fuck if someone you know comes and threatens you, you have to you know retaliation is a must and you have to do it like in a ruthless manner. Yep. So that's when I was, oh, my, my life got threatened, I believe. And then I was just reacting um, with the program 
sort of that I've been taught the conditioning. Um, and yeah, I offended over these next couple of weeks, um, went under shooting, um, and then I got heard, I heard uh, from my brother. <laughs> so the mascot, one of the mascot commissioners, uh, called my brother because my brother Fatuli's a mascot junior. They called him and they told him that fucking after your brother for the shooting and for all these other charges. Um, and my brother told me, "Fucking go, man! You need <laughs> you need to fucking get out of the state, you know." And I was in that frame of mind that I was in, you know, being fucking off my head on the ice, so paranoid, so fearful. Um, you know, I, I I thought it was worst case scenario. I thought it was him or me. I thought my family was going to get killed, or I was going to get killed. So I was either attack first mm-hmm. and deal with the repercussions later. Uh, so I went on the run for three weeks. Uh, still heavily on the ice, bro, on the pipe, um, out of paranoia, out of fear, um, fucking watching my back, walking around, bro, broad, broad daylight with two guns. Um, you know, I had magazines. I had 50 bullets in one pocket, pocket 50 bullets in the other, bro. Um, and funny story, when I, <laughs> it's not really funny, but when I got done, um, yeah, the copper goes, man, what the fuck are you doing? Are you going to fucking war? And I was like, in my state of mind, I was like, fucking oath, you know. Um, did you hand yourself in or did you get picked no, up? No, no, nah, no. Nah. I, got, I got picked up. So how I got done was um, an ex-girlfriend of mine. I had, obviously, I was dealing drugs and I had like three or four phones. And she picked up the phone that was obviously tapped. And um, yeah, caught a, caught a taxi. And I was just going to another uh, nightclub uh, event on a Thursday, I think it was, that we were just opening. Um, over there in Hurstville. And yeah, so obviously the phone is uh, tapped and then went outside into the taxi and I see two Ds and then the two Raptor trucks. So Raptor, uh, if you know who Raptor is, the bikey task force. So as soon as I see those two Toyota Camrys and two Raptor trucks, I'm thinking, fuck, man, they're coming for me. I've got two fucking guns, mate. I've got a you know 38 down my back, a 22 both loaded, 50 bullets in one side, 50 in the other. And two. And it was funny, bro. I had two Viagra pills in, in my pocket as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I told, the, I told the taxi driver, just keep fucking driving, keep driving. And they basically boxed me in and came to the door, guns drawn. They marked Lamar and I said, fuck, yeah, man. Put your fucking hands up, roughed me out, got me out. And that was it, bro. How was that next? I guess because you're so, you know, on drugs, addicted. How was that next, I guess, week to two? I get, you would have had to come back to reality. How was that? Mate, it took, it took me a couple of months, Benny, uh, to kind of realise, you know, the situation that I was in. Uh, when I got put into uh, the dry cells is when you're going through uh, prisons, um, it's just two prospect uh, windows with holes so there's a door at the front and there's a perspex window up the back with like 20 holes in it. You've got two, two concrete beds and then you've got your toilet, uh, your basin. Um, that was my sort of jail cell. And I was in there just losing the fucking plot, bro. I was, because I was still coming down off the meth. All I want to do was speak to my, my parents and my loved ones to let them know that I was all right. But because I was so fucking wired and fried and having withdrawals, I didn't sleep, bro, for at least a month, bro. At least a fucking month. I was coming down and um, that's when I started doing some crazy shit and the guards were fucking, yeah, I ended up getting bashed on my first what, couple of days because I burnt my cell, um, got put into another dry cell, was stripped naked um, with nothing but a blanket because I burnt my cell. 
and uh, they didn't feed me for about yeah felt like two days bro because i just kept threatening the the guards but this was out of you know, I'm, just, I'm withdrawing from fucking the ice and yeah. trying to make sense of the situation and angry and upset and that was my kind of introduction to jail bro so is there a protocol there like do they know you're an addict or they don't care so they don't try and put you through a detox or anything like that or they just throw you and you're just a number do your best yeah they, they throw you in and they see you how you react like if you're if you're kind of mentally stable then they'll just put you into the normal cells but because they've seen um, my charges and they seen that I was a bikey affiliated, we go through a different sort of process because you can't get sent to jails where obviously your uh, enemies are. So they all get segregated into different kind of jails. So we, they were going through that process and then I just started kicking off, bro. <laughs> started threatening the warden, the guards and burnt my cell and started flooding my cell and just going like, yeah, going real crazy because I was in a psychotic episode, bro. Um, drug and do psychosis. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. So at this stage, did you know what you're up against, as in how long your charges were going to be? And and had you been sentenced, or was this just no? This, this, this was like uh, I had to wait two years before they served my brief, so they served the facts. But this was the first, this was just the first couple of months, and it was like a movie, you know. I used to watch all these gangster movies and I'm thinking, fuck it, I'm here right now. How the fuck am I going to do 10 years? Because I, I knew in my mind, I was thinking, fuck, I'm, I'm looking at about 10 here. And bro, every day just felt like a month and the time just dragged. I'm withdrawing. I'm looking around, two concrete beds, no food. I'm starving. I'm naked in the cell. They left the lights on for two days. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep anyway. Um, but yeah, I was just losing the plot, but I was started to think, fuck, how the fuck am I going to do 10 years of this? So once you got through that, I guess, initial introduction to jail and you kind of, you come out of your psychotic episode, what was, what was going through your mind and how, how long were you looking at and how long did you get? Uh, yeah. So it took me, it took me a couple of years to come out, sort of come to, um back to back to baseline i think um once i got served my brief which was two years later and i started reading like what the, what i had done um then i was just kind of like shocked and kind of like upset um that man i put this guy and his family through this um if you know what i mean yeah. um then i went and got and had a couple of hearings before i got sentenced and my solicitor actually told me, nah, you're gonna you're looking at about three years, three years. So I'm I'm there down at the dock thinking, nah, I'll get about three years. And then I've gone in there and they've told me the first uh, thing that the judge says before when they sentence you, they they tell you the top of your sentence. So they, the first thing I heard was twenty twenty one, bro. Bro, I just fuck my knees just buckled, I just sat down, looked at the dock. My brother's going off at the judge. People are swearing. People are crying. I just looked over and I just went, fuck, 2021. So I, got, I ended up getting nine and a half years all up on the top. And then my bottom sentence was five and a half years. Uh, yeah. So did you get into, once you kind of got your sentence, did you get into like normality of jail, day-to-day routine? What was a normal day like for you in there? How would you describe it? Yeah, as soon as I got out of that sort of reception bit, and the boys always told me when I used to talk to them through the perspex that this is not jail. Jail gets better once you get to the mainstream. So um, once I got to the mainstream, man, it was, it was a breeze, bro. It was, I kind of walked into the yard and kind of like shitting myself thinking, fuck, 
who's here because Park Lee was the first jail that I went to and it's known for being like a violent uh, sort of jail. Uh, so, so me being 21, going into this, uh, 22, going into this jail, I'm, I'm shitting myself. But then I walk into the yard and it was like a family reunion, bro. I had an uncle in there. I had two cousins. I had boys from the area. So I was kind of sweet. But to answer your question, a normal routine would be get locked in. Uh, your door gets opened at about 9 o'clock in the morning. And then you're out until 3, 3 o'clock. So you're out for six hours. Get your breakfast at 9 o'clock. Uh, then you get lunch at 12 then you get your dinner at three o'clock, then you're locked in from three to nine. Um, but then during the day, you're just training with the boys, um, pretty much playing cards and poker and gambling, you know, getting caught up in jail politics. So even though that you dried out, was there, were you trying to use again in there? Or once you got that out of your system, you, you were kind of, you were past that? No, nah, bro. The, my drug abuse, like, actually, like, went through the roof once I went into prison. All right. Because uh, that's kind of, you know, drugs run the system. You know, drugs is like, and it's everywhere in jail. Um, at one stage, our warden goes, "You can get more drugs in here than on the outside," and it was so true, bro. I was introduced to heroin, started smoking heroin, uh, started smoking ice as soon as I could get, get get my hands on it, which was pretty easy. Uh, weed. Uh, coke, bro, you name it, bro. It was so much drugs in there. It's, it's not, it's not funny. So it wasn't like a, a turning point once you got in there and nah, fuck no, started man. escalating in there. Oh no, escalated, bro. I, my turning point came right at the end of my sentence. You know, I went into a drug-induced, another drug-induced psychosis, uh, and I started going around the jail doing some very, you know, violent <laughs> um, behaviors, behaviors to other inmates. Um, but as soon as I got put into uh, the psychiatric wing uh, where they dosed me bro, with all this kind of medication and they're trying to diagnose me with ADHD and schizophrenia and bipolar just to kind of uh, make sense of like how I was behaving. So they put me on all these um, antipsychotics until my, uh, I guess, until I got back to baseline, back to normal. And then my turning point came after that, once I ended up in that, fucking psychiatric wing and on my last six months coming out i thought fuck man something's got to fucking change so you've already rattled off a couple but is there any stories or incidents that really stick out for you in jail that were i guess there was a lot of fucking crazy shit which you've been talking about anything that really sticks out for you in there oh there's so much for that like that sticks out but i'll give you a paint a picture for what my first two weeks in the general population looked like but this is the kind of environment that I was I had to come accustomed to uh, I'm sitting there on my first two weeks and um, sitting next to uh, one of the OGs um, just to kind of observe and see you know see how he sort of does things um, and probably two meters in front of us um, two boys are going at it you know one guy gets put 40 holes into him bro right in front of me I'm sitting here going, "Fuck, man, this is this is this is jail." Uh, and the same that same week, uh, old matey on the other side of the yard uh, nicked himself. So got guy, one guy getting stabbed in front of me, about forty holes. Got a guy across the yard nicked himself. I walked into uh, the top landing of this the same yard that I was in, and then witnessed a guy get murdered. Um, so that was my first two weeks, bro. That was my first introduction into prison. Um, it was fucking crazy, bro. Fuck. And you're, you're saying you're sitting there with the, you know, the OGs, the seasoned 
guys, how do they react to this violence? Is that just like another day for them? This is the norm or? Mate, they didn't even blink, mate. They, they didn't even fucking blink, bro. Like, there's some very fucking violent men in there, bro. And, like, sometimes I talk to my wife and say, man, I'm, you know, I don't like anyone getting locked up, but there's some boys in there, you know, even mates of mine that I, I know. If they, are, if they were out in the streets, bro, they'll be just front of fucking muck. So um, some boys need to be locked up, bro, for the community safety, bro. They become conditioned to it and it's just normalized. Oh, it. mate. It's, it's, yeah, it's chaos in there. So what would you say during this whole, whole process? What was, could you put your finger on a lowest point or there was plenty in there? I think the lowest point for me was when I got put into that psychiatric wing. You know, it's the worst. Uh, they call it the spinner's pod. Uh, it's where all the loonies, loonies go, you know, and I knew about this pod and I eventually ended up in it. You know, it's about six cells and it's the worst um, sort of people that are mentally unstable in the state. And I'm there, bro. I'm sitting there and I'm just fucking losing the plot. Um, but that was probably the lowest point, you know, I'm glad my girlfriend at the time was now my wife, Desiree was there to, you know, support me through it, bro. Cause I was really, I was really losing the plot and it drove me to a point where I wanted to commit suicide, bro. I wanted to end my life with all the voices, uh, fucking, um, you know, the voices were so loud, bro. Just telling me that's it. Just, just end it, just end it. But I had six months left on my leg and I, I had to survive, man, just for my, my family. I, I knew I couldn't do that. Um, you know, go out like that, and um, I was just holding on, bro. But that was that was my lowest point, ending up in that psychiatric wing. So that was rock bottom, and that would be probably the point you could pinpoint as the turning point where you started to mm. a journey towards change. Yes, journey towards uh, quitting drugs. Ultimately, that was the first point. I wasn't really going to. I didn't really like. I guess plan to kind of at the point that I'm at now it was kind of a build-up of you know I'm going to get clean first and then I'm going to get out first and then I'm going to start getting my life back together and that's how that kind of unfolded well I guess that was that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask like what was that gradual journey towards change because I'm so sure you weren't just sitting in that prison cell one day and you flick the switch and go oh fuck I'm a new man today like (laughs) (laughs) how many years has it been from that point to now and what would you say the major milestones in that journey have been um, man it's been what three and a half years since i've been out of prison uh, it's been nearly four years since i've since i had that last psychotic episode and last time i touched the ice um so the gradual sort of change has been um over over these last four years it's been like Massive, you know, getting help and support from my wife. I'm very lucky fucking man to have the wife that I have. And uh, Desiree, you know, she's Aussie too, bro. So she's a soldier, mate, you know, decided to move countries um, uh, and start a new life with this guy coming out of prison, you know. So um, she's been a big part of that sort of trans- transition into the position that I'm at now in my journey. Well, that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about. You were deported. Yeah, bro. From Australia back to New Zealand. What's that entail? What's the process? Did you always know like when you're in there, yeah, I'm getting deported when I get out, there's no no chance of staying? Or was it just like, just when you were get, coming to the end of your sentence, they're like, and by the way, 
No, nah, I'm, I'm lucky. 2015, it gave me a couple of years to kind of plan and me and my wife to plan uh, for life um, in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, so 2015, they passed that new law. And then you get a letter and then fucking you find out you're getting deported. I'm thinking, fuck, spewing, bruh. Um, but that kind of process, yeah, gave me a couple of years. I found out in 2015 um, where some cases, bro, some boys get told two days before they're about to get out, bro, that they're getting, you know, getting the ass and that, that's pretty tough. Um, but yeah. Did you, did you leave much behind? Or as you said, you obviously had a bit of a chance to, uh, you know, mitigate the circumstances. You, you could prepare for it a little bit, but was there much you left behind or was it because, you know, you were kind of caught up, you were on the gear so heavy like did you know was there a house was there a car was there anything that you left behind that you couldn't take with you no bro after five and a half years bro i was i was in debt like what was i in debt so after seven years they got that law that they wipe your debt clear you know Mm -hmm. i think it's after like about seven years so when they came and see me i think it was the salvos and they said you're debt free now you know cars bikes laptops all your fines this and that i was thinking fucking (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah there was nothing bro i left there was nothing to, to take. It was a clean slate. Uh, my wife came over here with my mother-in-law and they got a house and got a car and got us set up about two weeks before I got out. So what's the actual rules with that? Like once you're deported, you're deported for life or can you have five, 10 years good behavior over there? Cause you, at the moment you can't come back. I think I've seen some pictures on socials like where you're, you know, you're at the airport, but you can't kind of cross. Yeah. Cross <laughs> it's, um, Back in the days, um, it, it used to be 10 years uh, and then you can reapply for your visa. But now, bro, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say never, never, Benny, but there's like a slim chance. I'm still appealing my uh, sort of case right now, but um, yeah, there's, there's, a slim, there's a slim chance to get back in, maybe down the track, but my mindset here, bro. So that doesn't affect you at all moving forward? Like, oh, I can't go back to Australia. You're just happy to be out there and moving forward in New Zealand. I'm just happy to be free, bro. And at the, it's something that I had to kind of like get used to. I, I don't want to sit and hope, oh, I might be coming back. Cause I always, my mum always tells me you're coming back, you're coming back. I'm like, oh, maybe one day mum, but I'm pretty happy and content with where I'm at now. So you've touched on us. Tell us about your wife and your daughter. Yeah. How much they mean to you now and how much they are kind of propelling you to where you want to go. And I've got a stepson as well, Tori. Yep. He's 15. Uh, yeah, so my wife, bro, she's just a soldier, mate. She's, um, you know, very intelligent, beautiful, um, very supportive, you know, the most loyal uh, person that I've ever met um, and just, you know, just had my back uh, since they got. And that's why I married her, bro. And she's just, you know, being that person that I can confide in. And, um, you know, she, she always knows when something's like, come up for me and something's affecting me and you know females bro they love to talk or my wife loves to talk and um yeah nah bro she's been a good soulmate and um if it wasn't for her bro trust me i i do believe i'd be back back in you know back in the into the drugs and back in the gang life and uh wheeling and dealing and then on the flip side um on the other side sorry i got two kids you know i've got a stepson who's 15 years old and that i'm you know proud to call um my stepson you know that he's relying on me bro he's watching my every move and i'm very aware of 
um, my behavior and how I act and how I'm sort of helping him navigate through um, this this sort of um, life. So I got that responsibility as a stepfather, but my my baby girl, bro, that's what my baby girl Naraya, that's what's um, sort of put my path on this on a different trajectory and. Uh, man, you you know yourself, bro. You got two kids, man. They're, they're beautiful human beings, and if that doesn't change you, then man, what will, bro? You see the world through different eyes. Yes, that's, bro. I think that's yes, the best bro. way I can explain it. You just see the world in a different way. But yep. so, road to redemption. That's that's your motto. That's your brand. That's your slogan. Explain to us, you know, what you're doing with that, and and what are your plans with road to redemption. Uh, yeah, so Road to Redemption is, um, you know, inspire change by speaking your truth is a kind of saying or motto that um, I'm trying to push with this brand, call it a movement. Uh, Road to Redemption is pretty much just me make, uh, correcting um, all my uh, wrongs, you know, and, and kind of um, redeeming myself, so to speak, for myself and for my family, you know, so they become proud of um, the man that I am and also um, sort of help... Um, youth that are kind of going through that right now you know i'm the um i was the end result of following that blueprint you know that programming the system following the boys and get caught up in drugs and take drugs and then you end up in prison um so for roads of redemption it's just kind of me and my wife is coming together and we're kind of coming together and putting together a framework uh, so we can go into the juvies because my wife's already in uh, that workspace so to go and kind of you know, help help the young ones. They don't have to end up in jail or prison like I did. Um, but that's pretty much where I want to go. I want to want to help at-risk youth, uh, early intervention, and boys that are coming out of prison, um, reintegrating back into the community. Uh, that's pretty much where my heart's at with Road to Redemption. That's what we're going to want to build. So what's your thoughts, what's your philosophy on your journey so far up until this point? Because... I always have this kind of in my head. I say, wherever I'm at in life, that's where I'm meant to be. And even, you know, past fuck ups, they were meant to happen because they've got me to this point and I've got a choice now whether, you know, I can go one way or the other. But those past experiences have made me who I am. And perhaps, I guess, for, like on your angle, you now have the ability to make more of a difference in people's lives through telling your story, sharing your journey and turning your life around, then, you know, perhaps you could have made playing rugby league. You know what I mean? Do you think that what you've done has brought you to this point and this is where you're meant to be? Or, you know, talk us through where you're at mentally with, you know, your journey. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe in fate. I, I do believe I could have made first grade, but I, what, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready. I didn't have the right sort of, mindset i didn't i wasn't right um with my mindset so where i'm at with my journey now um yeah i do believe that this is my calling bro um to inspire other other others not make the same mistakes that i did through using drugs uh ending up in prison and going down that gang sort of space i do believe that this is my calling bro and i feel like i'm living a more purposeful meaningful um life bro and you know, I'm only just warming up, Benny, bro. You know, I'm just in, I'm just in the sheds, bro. Just warming up, stretching, bro. It's, you know, we've got so much more ahead of us. You know, another seventy years. I'm only thirty years old, thirty-one, sorry. You know, 
So I love that moment. Up, I love that mob, man. Yeah, it's powerful when you think of it like that, and you can put those, you know, past demons and you, you know, use them. Yeah, like like you future. like you always always say with, um, with the cookie jar, you know, like yep, we can always draw back on on old past experiences, um, and and help others not make the same mistakes because that's the power of 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 our story of being a human being, but we're also unique and authentic and everyone can learn a bit of my story, a bit of your story, Benny, you know, a bit of key fees and um, you know, that's a powerful thing about being a human being, bro. We've all got stories, bro. And we've all got stories to tell. How would you compare yourself now, like sitting here right now in front of me on camera to the, you know, the kid, the kid that went into jail, you know, that first got locked up. How would you describe the difference? I'll still say I'm I'm still erratic, bro. My wife would always say that I've got a bit of ADHD. You know, I'm always moving. I'm always doing. I'm always been a go getter. Uh, but I'm 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 drug free, bro. You know, the mind's clear, the vision's clear. I got a deep uh, why, a deep purpose, a deep meaning um, to life, to live my life for my kids um, and for to leave a legacy, bro. Legacy is a big thing for me, bro. I want to leave a a blueprint for the next generations to come. You know, like like yourself you have kids now you have that responsibility bro to shape their their sort of um reality and their journey how they view the world so for me it's about legacy bro leaving a you know blueprint that's gonna set my kids 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 up for the rest of their lives so what advice would you have to young up-and-comers that you know might be coming through rugby league or you know just getting caught up in the wrong crowd in general that are kind of lured to that that gang life, what would you, what would you say to them now? That's a hard one, bro. Because even, even myself, I was going to say, uh, be mindful, uh, who you're, who you're following. Like what kind of fruit are they, are they, are they, do they have, uh, those gangsters if, if that's who you're following? But I, 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 I was in the same position, you know, as a young kid and I remember some, older boys telling me what the fuck are you doing this this and that i just wasn't ready benny to hear it if that makes sense um so yeah any advice for young kids out there would be man this that's a tough one bro <laughs> but like i would say for me like i'd say you're much more of a fucking gangster now sitting here in front of me than that guy that was walking around with two guns loaded and 50 clips in his pocket you know what i mean like you're facing up to your your demons you know you you're putting out you know positive energy you, you're being real that's you know that that's i think to me that's harder than you know carrying around guns in your back pocket you know what i mean like this is this has been like a real gangster like showing people you know this is the way you don't have to gravitate towards that negative crowd you know you can be positive you can be powerful yep. you can um you know create change that i think that's a probably a good message moving forward i would say you know people look at you now like this is this is what you can become yeah yeah bloody earth man um piece of advice for young kids out there uh, would be try try to self awareness, bro. That's that's a big one for me. Try to figure out what you want out of this life, what you want out of this reality, this journey, um, and and reverse engineer from there, bro. That's that's what I'd say, bro. Figure out self awareness. Figure out what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, where you want to go. Find the mental. Um, say if you're if you want to be an NRL star, find the mental that and and tailor 
um, sort of of their program. What are they doing? What are they eating? How are they sleeping? How are they exercising? Um, if you want to be a footy star or finances or find the mentor that's actually doing it and it's got the fruit um, and reverse engineer from there. And don't do fucking ice. <laughs> and don't do fucking ice. <laughs> yeah, um, bro. Um, we've got a few questions that people sent in, so I'll just uh, I'll hit you with those. Sweet, bro. Um, so, Gang Life, do you have any ties now or was there any initiation into the process or did you just kind of gradually walk into it through the nightclub scene? Uh, so, with the, the, the bikey club that I joined, they used, usually there is initiations but because it was it was new and they they kind of wanted members and i kind of knew the president it was kind of a walk-up start for me uh so there wasn't no initiation for me do i have any gang ties no i have a lot of mates that are still in that in, in that space you know i'm not going to be on this side of the uh, of the journey and like demonize what they're doing do you know what i mean i used to be there myself so um yeah i still have i want to say ties to gangs but i still have friends and family that's still you know deep in the gangs yeah I get that. that's one thing that we talk about a lot on here is like, it's not cutting people off. It's, you know, trying to bring them along with you. Now you're kind of setting the bar higher for everyone else and saying, well, you know, this is what can be possible. Yeah. I hear you there, brother. Biggest regret. Do you have one biggest regret? Mm. Yeah. It would be the ending up in prison because if I didn't end up in prison, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been deported. Um, on the flip side, bro, I've got a beautiful wife now and my, you know, my daughter. So, but that, that would probably be it, bro. Do you think what could have been in your rugby league career? Do you ever sit back and think, you know, fuck, that could be me out there? Yeah, yeah. I still have those moments every, every now and then, but it's passing thoughts, you know. Uh, yeah. What training are you doing now? Training, yeah. So I'll do a bit of, a uh, bit of everything boxing I'm into my boxing I uh, love weights I love doing uh, Metcon so kind of CrossFit uh, sort of uh, training um, but yeah that's the kind of training I'm doing yeah well, I guess it, this one's just for me I just thought of it then but what's like a daily routine for you do you have things locked into place and do you find following that routine and you know staying disciplined with your training and with what you eat is you know helping you stay on the path you know towards you know the change that you want to becoming the end yeah 100 percent. my routine is pretty structured bro i'm a structured sort of guy and i try to implement that and kind of teach my um steps on that you know it's all about setting up the night before so i'll set up my training gear set up my food uh, my daughter's food uh, to prepare me well next day sleep then i used to be obviously because i used to be on the ice you know you wouldn't sleep but um i will I, I didn't used to think that you need eight, eight hours but i'm sort of good at you know, six and a half, seven, or what? If I need to get up, if I get go sleep the, uh, late um, the night before, I would still have to get up. I, I still have to get up. So if, whether that's four hours, five hours, six hours. So yeah, sleep's important. Setting up the night before, I'll get up, drink a glass of water, have my shower. Um, I'm not big on food. I'll go. Hit, I'll go straight to the gym. Be in the gym for about an hour. Have a shower. Get ready and go to work. That you. That'll be my like. Monday to Friday, and then the weekend, I'm pretty flexible. How supportive was your family when you were locked up? Yeah, very supportive. Uh, just immediate family, bro. Um, yeah, they were always there when I needed them, and you know, some people fell off, fell off uh, as the years went on. Uh, can't blame them. 
but yeah, very supportive, always sending me letters and you know, my sisters and my brothers always come see me out and mum and dad. My dad really struggled to see me in those jail visits and I don't blame him. Um, but yeah, very supportive. All right, last one. You've touched on it before. Legacy. If you had to sum it up, what legacy do you want to leave behind, I guess, for yourself, uh, your family, and more importantly, your kids? Just to leave a, a legacy of uh, set up my next, set up a generational uh, wealth, health, wealth, and uh, well-being, bro. That's the sort of legacy that I want to leave for the next generation coming through, bro. Set them up with money, uh, you know, mentally, physically, uh, you know, come up with these systems that, you know, it's just going to set them up, bro, so they can live, live their life of however they want to live it. I love it, brother. So where can people follow you on social media and that? Yeah, just on Instagram. I'm not really on Facebook. don't really like the platform. I do have a page on, on Facebook, so that's at uh, Road to Redemption. Uh, but, yeah, mostly on Instagram, uh, Mark underscore Tolanoa underscore R2R. That's where you'll find me. All right, brother. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, I love what you're doing. It's powerful, man, and it's exciting. And as you said, you're just in the sheds, brother. We're just warming up. Like, oh, we're warming up. This is lifelong, so I'm proud of what you're doing, man. It's uh, it's awesome. Let's keep rolling. Thanks, Benny. And I just want to acknowledge and commend um, you and Scott and MIA um, on this amazing movement that you guys have started, this community, this family. I'm proud to call myself a CMG, bro. And, um, yeah, I just want to commend you on all, all the information that you guys uh, are doing, and what, especially you, bro, and, and what you're doing as well, and so as well as Keefe. Um, but keep going, bro. Keep going with your, you know, staying off the drink. And I heard your wife, uh, when she got interviewed, or your fiance, uh, she's proud of you, bro, that, you know, this, this new man that you've become. So keep going, bro. I'm watching, bro, and we'll stay in contact. 100%, brother. Thank you for that. Yeah, we're all in this together. We all feed each other. So let's keep going, my bro. Fucking hope. And I hope um, Keefe can make it next time. <laughs>